0: This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So we didn't have an episode last week cause Michael and I were out filming for Anything Goes, making some fishing episodes, as well as catching up on some editing. So back at it this week. I did though, take the weekends off and managed to get some backpacking in and hung out with my family. We did some fishing, gotta to go to a few different lakes. We caught some trout, we caught some walleye, we caught some perch. It was definitely a good time seeing everybody and catching up. But with fishing in mind, let's check in to see what Michael has going on.
1: Just back in the fishing corner here, enjoying a Thursday, but a Friday for us here at Fresh Tracks. Um, day, so yesterday was 117 days for 2022. We've been getting after it a lot. Filming anything goes. We wrapped up our carp shoot, which literally we shot some carp, and we also caught one on a fly rod. Been trout fishing nonstop. One of the highlights I've had over the past couple of weeks is I caught a fish on a bird fly, like a little swallow fly. Been getting a lot of fish on dry flies, been getting out almost every single day. One of the things that we did last week that I've never done before, we went out and we shot carp out of Marcus's boat. And some of these clips are just insane. I knew that there were a lot of them in this particular reservoir. Didn't realize how many there were. And these drone clips are just insane seeing how many fish are in there. And it's kind of funny because it's like, we're trying to highlight the polarizing differences between bow fishing and shooting them and then fly fishing, something that I really like to do. It's sight fishing. It's really some. It's kind of like flats fishing in like, you know, Florida or something for bone fish, but it was a ton of fun. Marcus and I also have been out this week filming our third episode um, for this season of Anything Goes. It's on native trout and we've kind of struggled, but we did find some fish, we've caught some fish. It's it's really, it's, it's opened my eyes to like why people are so interested in like the rainbow trout and the brown trout rather than your native fish species because you got to travel and, and work really hard to find these these tiny native fish. But it's been a ton of fun. Caught this brown last night in my backyard. The fishing's been really great the last hour of, of daylight. From the fishing corner, it's Mike P. Back to you, Marcus Hockett. So
0: also, Randy has been busy recording various videos and podcasts. Uh, one super interesting podcast he recently did was with Chris Servine, Uh, about grizzly bears, uh, the past history, talking about what the future could look like in a greater Yellowstone area. Uh, A lot of interesting stuff there. You can check it out on any of the podcast platforms. A little crew update. We recently said farewell to our office manager, RJ. He got a tenure track position teaching cinematography at Montana State University. So. Awesome for him, RJ has been a solid part of the team for years helping out with every aspect of the company. He filmed a lot of the really cool elk footage that you might have seen as uh, B-roll clips in some of the videos. We're definitely uh, way more disorganized now that we don't have RJ and we wish him luck on his new endeavor. Also, we are saying goodbye to one of our editors, Jess. She is moving on to another company. Jess is an extremely talented editor. She has edited a number of our Fresh Tracks episodes and day-by-day hunts and some cool conservation story videos. Uh, So we wish her well. Uh, We're definitely gonna miss her. Um, But also, if you happen to be a video editor and you're watching this video, you can apply to be a video editor with us. I'll put a link in the video description to the job posting. On to some news. We have all wildlife related news this week. Earlier this year, we talked about wolves being put back on the endangered species list in certain areas. One of those most affected was Minnesota. Minnesota has recently released a draft management plan for wolves within the state and are seeking public comment. Right now, the state has very little control over the management, but a lot of the plan details their strategy for when they regain control. I skimmed through the plan, and it seemed like a pretty balanced and detailed approach of how they can maintain stable populations. Of course, as hunters, we like to know what the plan is for wolf hunting and trapping uh, when the state regains control. This section seemed relatively vague and non-committal, which I guess I kind of understand given the history. It has a lot of ifs, like if we have a hunting season or if a hunting season is proposed. Uh, They talk about wolf hunting being contentious, but also mentioning the success of hunting seasons in other states and provinces. They talked about that if they have a season, they will be transparent, they'll have public comment, collect good data to know what every effect will be from each season. I think the reason that they had to tiptoe around wolf hunting is because they've already had management taken away from them twice. Once after hunting seasons in 2012 through 2014, and then again last year. So, even though the population has maintained stable levels well above the recovery goal, the courts don't agree that they can have a wolf season. It has become more evident that public perception plays a big role in what the state agencies are allowed to do. This was even more evident in a different part of the draft plan that showed results of a survey conducted by Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. In the survey, they found that 80% of respondents did not support wolf hunting or trapping of wolves. They did note that that survey was not representative of their constituents, as the survey was conducted mostly of Metro residents, many of whom were not from Minnesota. But further, they did break it down and Minnesotan respondents still saying 50% oppose wolf hunting while 41% support it. Trapping was worse with 60% opposition and 30% support. So as a hunter or livestock owner, you're closer to the impacts of wolves and obviously more in tune with the effects that they have on wildlife and the ecosystem and the livestock and you're more likely to support a season. But those who just think wolves look cool, obviously you're gonna have different opinions. This is a really interesting topic because I don't think we will ever be able to easily convince people that killing an animal that looks like their pet is a good idea. It's also becoming more and more clear that without at least 50% public support it's going to be difficult to keep these hunting seasons going. Arizona held its big game super raffle this week where Arizona Game and Fish gives this nonprofit uh, commissioner tags that can be raffled off. So there are seven tags one for each big game species and it's good for every unit in the state for the entire year. Meaning if you're chosen for one of these tags you're going to have a pretty amazing hunt. I know that both Randy and I did some degenerate gambling with this, uh, buying some raffle tickets. I think his problem is usually centered around pronghorn, while mine is centered around bighorn sheep. Uh, Turns out neither of us uh, won a permit, but While this raffle is basically gambling, the money raised goes towards Arizona wildlife management and habitat improvement, so at least your gambling is going towards a good cause. So far, $9.9 million have been raised through this raffle program, and a lot of it goes to water developments and improvement of habitat, such as the pinion juniper removal to restore historic grasslands. The nonprofit also mentioned that they'll be rebranding this year as Conservation First. Uh, So next year, they'll have a new name, new look, so look out for that. Uh, But it's cool to see money going towards Uh, wildlife. But I do have to mention, at some point I think we're going to need to do a deeper dive into the Commissioner uh, raffle and auction tags. Uh, They have the ability to raise a lot of money very quickly, but also it's that step in the direction of privatizing wildlife. It seems like a lot of states offer up one or two tags per species per year, but some states have started to do more than that, and it gives me a bit of an uneasy feeling when you can buy your way into the best tags in a state. Uh, A lot to unpack there. We're gonna have to do a deeper dive in a future episode. An update on the RETURN Act. Previously, we talked about the attempt to repeal the Pittman-Robertson Act. I received a few emails saying that funding for wildlife could come from other sources if this RETURN Act was to go through. But uh, I found it interesting that Witt Fosberg of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership just recently posted an update on their blog, on their website detailing how the replaced funding in the Return Act would only go towards non-game species conservation. So we would lose funding for things like deer and elk and turkey, and they would only go towards species that we don't hunt. My representative in Montana, Matt Rosendale, is still a co-sponsor on this bill. I sent him and his staff a polite email asking for what the justification in supporting such a bill was, but I still have not received a response. It is interesting when the gun industry largely is opposing the Return Act. They want to keep the tax that's on themselves. Uh, You think that that would be a little bit to maybe make people question the merits of this bill. We will keep following this one. So we've touched on Montana elk management multiple times in the past episodes. We've talked about how the elk management plan is out of date and talked about some really bad ideas that have been brought up to change elk management. Also previously mentioned that the Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks created an elk advisory group and their recent idea that they've come up to address a problem is to have a pick your weapon type elk season in an effort to reduce hunter crowding on overpressuring elk. Currently, the general elk tag is good for six weeks of archery and five weeks of rifle hunting, and if this idea was adopted in the future, you'd have to choose either archery or rifle. So, this has fired up a lot of people in the state. It seems like most Montana hunters oppose this idea. Honestly, I'd be fine with having to choose my weapon if it actually fixed the problem, but I don't think it would. To me, it just seems like this is a distraction from the main issue of hunters not having access to these problem elk. We focus on Montana a lot because it's where we live and we're familiar with it. But instead of doing another deep dive on Montana specifically, I thought it'd be interesting to look at the different elk management practices across Western states. Because every state has different issues, different cultures, different management styles. And Randy has a pretty good grasp on this on each state. So he's gonna give us the Cliff Notes version of the various elk management strategies in each state in this week's deeper dive. With elk management in mind in Montana, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to, I wanted to talk about elk management philosophies and cultures. Everywhere. And yeah, kind of the western states, the states that we're familiar with because Mm -hmm. it's, there's definitely stuff that we probably don't know back east and I don't know about you but Washington and Oregon like not, I don't know a ton about. But kind of the Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado. Idaho, did I say? Idaho, U- probably. Utah, anyway. Nevada. Utah, Nevada, but because I used to have a thought of what I thought I wanted out of elk management, mm-hmm. going to school for fish and wildlife management and just growing up hunting elk in Montana. I had mm-hmm. this vision of what I thought was the best idea. Yeah. But then I feel like as I started working for you and seeing how Elk management and the take system and what it, the cultures were like in other states, mm-hmm. it's kind of shifted my opinion a little bit. Yeah. I feel like we might disagree with this a little bit because I, I have grown to appreciate the opportunity state that Montana is mm-hmm. at the same time as acknowledge, at the same time acknowledging that as things change and as the, the more, there's more demand on the resource, we have to change along right. with that. But I guess I, I I predict that we will look back now, like the current time, as the good old days. Okay, in some in some respects, And the fact that I like I can see myself. You know, I remember I used to go down and buy my elk tag over the counter, and I'd shoot an elk every year. And that you know, and then this is like. Yeah. I, don't need, th- I don't think it's going to be
2: that you way You need more of this gray stuff, Marcus, and what comes with the gray stuff is saying just that. Well, back in, yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, so, I, I can say that right now. That yeah, well, yeah. Is it, because when I, you know, 30 years ago when I bought my first elk tag in Montana, you had to apply for a cow elk tag. Mm-hmm. It's like, boy, I hope I draw my cow elk tag. Well, now you can go down here to a wildlife office right, and buy them over the counter, B tags.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about too, because like the elk, well, it'd be I forget what the total elk numbers are, but the distribution of elk and elk, like the concentrations of elk, has shifted Tra- in dramatically. Montana dramatically. In certain districts, we used mm-hmm. to have a ton, and then through habitat and wolves, right. knocked them way down, and then. In other areas, central Montana and eastern Montana, it's blown up and elk have done really well. Western Montana, some places have gone down, some places have gone up. So it's all over the board. There's no standardization. But I think, I don't want to get too Montana-centric again because I think there's... No,
2: I I think there's a lesson in Montana that this change you're talking about has been huge in every western state. Mm -hmm. And the one change we should get to before we wrap up is huge changes in resident population numbers. Right. But in Montana, we're dealing with an elk plan that was designed in 2004. Mm-hmm. In the last 18 years, Montana's population has went way up. The elk distributions like you talked about has changed dramatically. We have habitats that once were premium that are now like old, you know, post-climax type stuff. We have so many things. We have changing land ownership patterns where yep. we have very wealthy people buying ranches. And we say, I'm, I'm saying that Montana is an example. If you went and talked to people in Colorado, you'd hear the same thing. If you talked to people in Idaho, in Wyoming, in New Mexico, you'd be hearing these same things. Mm-hmm. So as all of these things are changing, the landscape's changing, the land ownership patterns are changing, demand by residents is changing, you can't operate from a plan that's almost 20 years old,
0: yeah, for sure, so. yeah, I think access to the elk has been one of the big ones in mm-hmm. Montana and other states other as states, well yeah. but um, yeah, so I think with that in mind, Montana' is a good example, and I guarantee we're going to bounce back to it, but um, I think what it, the same thing that happened to me of seeing these other states, I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of give a brief synopsis of what it looks like across some of these states sure and, and like of elk management essentially. And so the elks the elk are managed by the state agencies. So the state yep. game and fish departments do the, do the management and, you know, make these plans and whatever. And we like to think that they or at least I used to like to think that, you know, it's like, oh, carrying capacity, you look at the habitat <laughs> and what it can support. But realistically that's no. I mean it is it's a factor, but it's a very small factor in the grand right. scheme of things when you take in all the social Issues right. and landowners and farmers and what the hunters want and this like the and I think mm-hmm. what people don't understand is I mean these state agencies are listening to all their constituents right and hunters are one of the big ones one of them in yep. theory sometimes mm-hmm. you wonder yeah but then that so are landowners and mm-hmm. farmers and ranchers I mean so but the the general public can sway how those elk are managed mm-hmm. and by to a large extent yeah. And so like, yeah. what do you think are all the factors that come into play? I would with, say-
2: With how they- How they get managed. Yeah. Because you have the, the biological carrying capacity. Right. I would say there's not an herd in Montana, or in the West that is beyond its biological carrying capacity. Right. Where the complaints are is where it's beyond some people's social capacity, or the constraint on getting a tag is not within someone's yeah preference well it
0: it has happened though where like in the not too distant past and i don't want to like you know over uh you know whatever advertise that but uh where elk have been a detriment to habitat where they have been over their carrying capacity i i I, it has happened like there's been there's been some isolated places and Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's the whole, people probably saw the the film, the return, what is it, the return of the river, like went viral yeah. of like, yeah, the, you know, the
2: Elf. Trophic Cascades. The Trophic thing. Cascades and yeah. stuff, which in is. in Yellowstone. Right, yeah. so
0: I think it's, I, uh, this is a tangent, but I think it's right. kind of an interesting one because right. that got a lot of attention from people outside the hunting community mm-hmm. of like environmentalists or whatever. And it turns out that it was largely overinflated of the effect of it, wait, but. Wait It's still, I think we can't completely discount the fact that elk can destroy habitat in certain circumstances.
2: It can, but I'm saying right now, today, if you went and measured the western United States, maybe you could find a handful of herds that are damaging... The landscape or the habitat, because they are so far in excess of carrying capacity.
0: But it's yeah, like yeah, like you said. Would, it, I just wanted to, I just yeah. to put it out there because somebody ch- was going to say it. But yeah, largely it's like yeah. it's not a thing. It's social, social carrying social. capacity. Social. So capacity.
2: our wildlife managers become social scientists to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, our politicians think that they are wildlife scientists and then they also got to be our wildlife managers have to become people managers because they're having to manage hunters Mm -hmm. as we lose access to previously accessible places or so much pressure pushes elk to inaccessible places now you got to manage the hunters yeah and and the amount of pressure they can put on the elk or you know before it ruins the experience and all that other stuff so you think about all those things and how does each of those different groups exercise their influence in policy? And this is where I, <clears throat> someone, I'm sure somebody just like you were worried is going to say, wait, I'm going to generalize here. I think that you either influence policy with your money mm-hmm. because you can pay your attorney to go and meet with so-and-so. Or you make enough campaign contributions. So let's let's not pretend that doesn't happen. Oh, yeah. yeah, everywhere in the West, uh, you can do it with your influence. So you know somebody who right. knows somebody or whatever. So well, that this is what it is. Right. Then you can also do it with just a sheer number of people, which is kind of the public, our audience. Right. Is if if you wanna have some say in where this, this management strategy ends up on this spectrum of extreme quality at the cost of opportunity or nothing but opportunity at the expense maybe of the, the herd itself or strictly catering to those who can get premium access versus those who have to hunt public land right it, it's not like two-dimensional yeah. It's four-dimensional or whatever you'd want to call it uh but really you're going to either be part of that system with money with power and influence or with your voice of, of a larger group right where so
0: that's where the hunters often tend to make a difference is yeah hmm? numbers showing up and right. making a difference yeah
2: but. and if we show up i i could point to you in many states where hunters showed up and said, we aren't gonna stand for this.
0: Right.
2: And they moved the needle to wherever they wanted it to be. The, the other groups hope that hunters just stay at home or stay down at the coffee shop and complain there or complain mm-hmm. on Facebook and don't show up when it really matters. Because then that gives them the latitude to move the, the point of, you know, here's where we're gonna end up, move it over to where they want it.
0: Right. Yeah, I think it's I think it's super interesting. But uh, so, with all those factors that mm-hmm. that can influence management, I feel like two examples I think of like wanting to see like two states mm-hmm. where the, the examples are kind of contrasting would be Nevada and Colorado. Those are good contrasts. So, yeah, I think like can you talk a little bit about. <clears throat> what it's like in Nevada, mm-hmm. like for, from the hunter's perspective, because I, I think that's most right. our audience is listening. <clears throat> it's like, so what is that, what do you think the management is, or why is the manage, management the way that it is in Nevada, and then what does that mean for the hunter?
2: Right. And I love Nevada. Went to college there. I go back all the time. We've filmed there a lot. Mm-hmm. We haven't filmed either of us elk hunting there, though. Why is that? I don't, well, <laughs> it's kind of to your question about what that means for hunters. Yeah. Nevada is the most arid state in the nation. So the habitat is, the, the super high quality habitat only exists in certain places. Mm-hmm. And where there is other high quality habitat where there's a lot of water, those are the places that have been agriculture forever. So they have to really balance this. Yeah. They don't have a lot of opportunity because they just don't have tons of elk. Right. And when they do have problems, they got to act quickly. So what that means for hunters is it's really hard to draw a tag. And there's these, if you draw, there's these waiting periods. And there's these point systems and all this other stuff. So it's close to a once in a lifetime for a mature bull elk tag. In Nevada.
0: Even for a resident Even sometimes. for a resident. Yeah, that's what it sounded, from This people we've talked to, it yeah. seems like maybe, maybe twice. You'd be yeah. real lucky if you get it twice, but yeah. and you so, should get one elk tag in your lifetime. Yeah. Which, I mean, me hearing that is like, no way. Terrified. <laughs> and so this, but I think it's interesting because the people you know who have had Nevada elk tags, it seems mm-hmm. like it's an amazing experience. It is. And you, it's you world have class like, experience. You, you don't, you don't have hunter pressure. You have quality animals. A lot of animals. I mean, mm-hmm. relative to op, your, uh, you know, opportunity, I guess. But. Mm-hmm. And you, you touched um, on
2: something about how these systems and how management happens. Kind of creates hunting cultures, right? Right. In Montana, would you ever see six of your buddies say, "Hey, Marcus, you got an elk tag over here? I'll give, a, uh, I'll take my
0: week of vacation and I'll tag along with you."
2: Never in a place like Montana or Idaho or that's, Wyoming.
0: That's one of the really interesting aspects that I wanted to bring up about both Nevada and then Utah. Utah. I've seen it mm-hmm. where it's like one person has the tag, but then. You know, there might, there's 10 other people that are right. camping with and scouting for and helping that person mm-hmm. out, which I totally understand because that's their experience. That's the, how they're able to get outside and yeah. hunt, you know. Yeah.
2: So it, it, it is, it, it's, a, it's a function of how that hunting culture has developed mm-hmm. because of the landscape and, and how you have to manage on a landscape like that.
0: Yeah, and then on the contrary, you have Colorado, which has over-the-counter elk tags in quite a few areas. Mm -hmm. 90 units. And I have yet to experience this. Oh, you need to go do it. I've seen your videos from a couple of those hunts and I've heard stories and it sounds like it's like an orange army. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, what do you describe that? Yeah,
2: well... Colorado hosts, I I haven't done the math, but I would bet if you took all their over-the-counter archery, over-the-counter second and third rifle seasons, and how many of those are non residents I bet you they host more non-resident elk hunters than all the other western states combined. They also have the largest elk population. And they have some of the most amazing abundant habitat. And they have built a hunting culture that, for their little towns on the west slope hunting has become part of their business from traveling non-residents, like you and I, or whether they're guided or whatever. And so in Colorado, you have this just on the other end of the spectrum, the landscape and the herd health allows you to have a completely different hunting culture. You have to manage it differently. The landscape's robust and abundant for what elk want. So. We only have the state of Utah separating Nevada and Colorado and look at the huge differences and, and what it ends up in a difference in management philosophy, what it ends up in a difference of hunting cultures.
0: So. Yeah, so do you think, I mean obviously the elk herd size and the habitat are two drastically different things yep. in those two states. So that's like the number one thing that would dictate those but, What I'm curious is do you think that when you have those restricted seasons, does that, like in Nevada, Mm -hmm. do you think that that leads to more of a trophy hunting culture where the hunters who live there and advocate for those wildlife are just, it's kind of the chicken and the egg thing, Mm -hmm. like what what drives what? But it just seems to me that the culture in Nevada and Utah is a it's all about getting that big bull. Cause when you draw that tag, your once in a lifetime tag, you wanna make it count. You gotta kill the biggest bull. And it just creates this like trophy hunting culture. And I'm not, I'm not like trying to bash on it. Like I like trying to shoot big bulls too. Mm-hmm. But it's just really interesting to see that.
2: Yeah. And I, I don't think it's so much of the people in Nevada or Utah are about, I gotta kill one this big. I think it's a large part of the fact that they know they're not gonna get a tag for another 15 or 25 years. So they are out there scouting. Yeah. They scout way more than we do. They got trail cameras, they got whatever. And when they get there, do you wanna end it opening morning? And so they hunt, They, they, they take their whole vacation. They're not, when you draw an elk tag in one of those states, this isn't a weekend warrior thing. Right because their seasons are shorter than ours. So they say, all right, I got this 13 day season. I am hunting every day of that. And it's gonna take something super exceptional for me to end my elk hunt opening morning. Right. And so it's a combination I, of all those things
0: I, that I don't tol- think
2: contribute to what you're observing.
0: Yeah, and I totally get that. But do you think it leads them to advocating for even more restrictive seasons? Because in my yeah. mind, there mm-hmm. probably is some room Mm-hmm. in some of those districts to allow for more opportunity. Right. But you, yeah, you might not have 370 bulls. You might right. have a, a bunch of four-year-old bulls running around mm-hmm. and there you ha- could have more hunters on the landscape shooting four-year-old bulls. And right. It's probably fine for the elk herd. The elk herd probably mm-hmm. still gonna be healthy. Right. But do you think that those hunters have, it just like perpetuates that want to shoot that 370 bull where they're self-restricting
2: yeah i i don't know i do know that those two states manage on different criteria than we do yeah utah their limited entry elk hunts have expected age class of harvest so they age these elk mm-hmm. and in some units they expect them to be seven and a half average seven and a half years or older
0: which in coming from montana or colorado in a general no. or what? wyoming that, yeah. idaho colorado all those states that kind of have that general opportunity right
2: so their state is managing for that mm-hmm. is that because the state says this is what we got to do to manage on this landscape or is it hunter pressure like you're saying where no we want we'll, we'll give up opportunity for older poles nevada if you look at the data they track 50 inch or longer main beams six points per side those are criteria that go into their management well if you're going to have six points per side and you're trying to have some percentage of 50 50 inch or longer main beams, that's gonna result in a way different management strategy than we have or Mm -hmm. Wyoming has or Idaho Mm -hmm. or Colorado. And I don't know if that's a requirement or just how they have to do it. It, I mean, they're smarter than I am, so I'm not here to question Mm -hmm. how they came up with their tracking and measurement criteria. But is that what's driving the availability of what's there and what they're trying to manage for or are the hunters driving that i yeah. don't know
0: well that's another interesting aspect to this is like the hunter satisfaction of mm-hmm. like whether it is like to some hunters satisfaction is killing the giant bull mm-hmm. some hunters it might be seeing a lot of elk right. and having an opportunity to add an elk regardless yep. of what it is yeah and so i it just like I'm curious, like, in your opinion, what do you think some of the best, like the highest hunter satisfaction states are? And then, but at the same time, I think like we mentioned, Nevada is probably very high satisfaction for mm -hmm. when you get the tag, but you're only going to get it once in a lifetime. And so
2: is Utah. Utah is also. And if you look at uh, New Mexico, they publish for every year, for every hunt code, a hunter satisfaction rating on a one to five scale. So you can go look at all of them. And the, the season dates have something to do with it. There's some units in New Mexico where they give away a lot of tags, so it's a more crowded hunt, and those always have lower satisfaction rates. Then they have some where it's like, yeah, we could give away more tags, but we're only giving away 30. Those ones always have high satisfaction. So you look at that and you realize how many, like you started down that trail, how many different things go into hunter satisfaction? filling a tag shooting a big one seeing lots of elk having the place kind of you to yourself yeah it, so I I, I I for me anyhow i have my own ideas of what makes my quality hunt or my hunt a quality hunt but i have no expectation that everybody else is going to see it through the same lens i do right and yeah, all those is factors gonna have different weigh into
0: it okay so before we wrap this up i want to yep. get because I feel like you have really good insight on this. You've hunted <laughs> pretty much all these states. You've seen this. So I want the quick one hitter, like from each state. Like, yeah. give me like the short synopsis of a little bit about how you view that as an opportunity versus trophy. Maybe and if you want to toss in like kind of the general. I think another thing that we didn't we've just briefly touched on is land ownership. Because yeah. that basically the access to the elk. Yeah. Um, so. Let's run through these states and give Kay. me, like, your quick one-liners of you. So, uh, Montana, what's All your right, one? right,
2: start at the north. Yeah, we'll, Mon- let's, we'll, let's work down. Montana, opportunity state. Okay. Hunt elk like crazy. Something for everybody, but dealing with huge population increases, dealing with inaccessible elk, Montana in the front windshield has a lot of challenges ahead of it. Idaho. Idaho, another opportunity state. Has the benefit of being two-thirds public land and the one-third that is private is not elk habitat. Or in Montana, one-third public, two-thirds private, and a lot of the private is elk habitat. So, completely different change of, of landscape and how elk use that and how hunters use that. Idaho has a really good gig going. They'll have some challenges, but I think not nearly well. their Their biggest challenge is gonna be the fact they are the fastest growing state in the West percentage-wise. Wyoming. Wyoming. Wyoming, historically, has been able to insulate their elk management from politics. That is starting to change, and that, when you start having elected officials think they got wildlife science degrees, you got some problems. But Wyoming has, for all, if you want to put Wyoming more over to an opportunity state like Montana and Idaho. And Colorado, they have the highest success rates of all of those four states, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado. Wyoming is off the charts compared to the others in success rates. Mm. So Wyoming is doing something right. So I think Wyoming is a little bit of an example for people to look to of what are they doing? Because they do have this dynamic where in the east part of the state it's mostly private, gets to a mix in the central part of the state, and it's mostly public to the west. They have the challenges Montana and Colorado have. They just have worked harder at it.
0: Okay, Nevada.
2: Nevada. Uh, I think we kind of touched on it. We, yeah, ex- we. Ex- extreme. Uh, just an amazing experience if you can draw a tag, but. If you are lucky enough that you could draw a tag, you should have been down at the casino in Vegas putting your money down <laughs> because that might have been your day. Utah? But Utah. Um, they do have some spike hunts, some over-the-counter hunts, mm-hmm. some archery hunts, you know, spike archery hunts and stuff like that. Utah, uh, again, like Idaho, is are seeing a huge population boom and they're having to constrain the amount of harvest. First thought for me that comes to mind is Utah, once you get, you're going to get your one tag in a lifetime as the average person, so you better make the most of it.
0: Hmm. Colorado?
2: Colorado. I think we said that. Yeah. Super high opportunity state. Uh, Again, even though their percentage of, of population increase residents is not what Idaho is percentage wise, they're a larger population state. So total numbers is still increasing rapidly. And as those residents want more and more of the pie for themselves, there's going to be changes in in Colorado. And, you know, Colorado has become the home of ballot box biology. Mm. And that's, that's going to create challenges for them for every species they manage.
0: Yeah. Arizona?
2: Arizona. I think if you look at. The limited habitat Arizona has to manage elk in the northern, the Mogi on Rim country, over in the White Mountains, they do an unbelievable job of quality and getting people out in the hills. They've used certain periods of the year, of the season, when they know elk are way harder to kill, say, oh, we can put more people out then. But then, for the person who's really dreaming of that once-in-a-lifetime experience, they have some amazing archery hunts, muzzleloader hunts, early rifle hunts. I think for the resource Arizona has to work with, they're really, really high on that list. Hmm. That's the reason why we apply there every year, right? (laughs) I've been lucky to have some tags, there, and there's not a bad elk hunt in, in Arizona.
0: Gotcha and then New Mexico.
2: New Mexico is so interesting because if you look at there, there's the pool of tags that we we draw for but if you look at the total elk management almost I think close to half of the tags go through a landowner program either ranch only where you can only hunt their deeded land or unit wide where you can hunt any of the public or private land you have access to. So New Mexico is really this strange thing. And as their population is increasing, residents are saying, wait a second. New Mexico, for the confines that their legislature has put on their agency, their rank and file agency people are doing it. I think a lot like Arizona, having short seasons, four or five day, five day rifle seasons, 10 day archery season, to get a lot of people out there to have the experience and know that, hey, you're probably not gonna have high success rates, but we got people out there. Mm -hmm. And age class, they do a really, really good job with age class, and they've resisted the foolishness, along with Idaho, of implementing a point system.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that? that's another video we're gonna to have to do is this, the point says, is there any other states you think we, I mean, that's kind we, of- We didn't touch ready? on
2: Oregon. I think Oregon is probably the other Western state okay. that hosts a lot of hunting, but yeah. neither of us have hunted there. So I, I just don't feel qualified. And a lot of our listeners are traveling from, you know, the Midwest or somewhere else. And it's hard for us to say, oh yeah, drive through Colorado and through Idaho to get to Oregon, drive through all that great elk country to go hunt Oregon. So it's not, anything against Oregon, it's just yeah. what makes sense.
0: Yeah, the only thing, again, I don't know anything about it, but the one thing I did find interesting is Oregon and Washington, I think, had the lowest success yeah. rates out of all the western mm-hmm. states.
2: Yeah, and that, that becomes another thing, you know, some of these states manage for, they want to have some parameter of success rates. Yeah. Some want to have a certain percentage of after-season or post-harvest bull cows. cows. If they're seeing a post harvest cow to calf ratio. So when they reach certain points, it's like, all right, we got to adjust. We're like, what do you guys call that? In adaptive harvest management yeah. or something <laughs> like that? So every one of these states is doing it differently. And my hope uh, of all of this, my hope is that whatever they are doing, it reflects what the citizens of that state want. Yeah. Not some well connected, you know, political like nepotistic person or not somebody who blows into town with billions of dollars and says i'm here to tell you how it's done i think every state should do it according to what their residents want
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and yeah even that's a wide spectrum
0: right but well speaking of which i'm curious what the audience thinks in terms of like what do they prefer like if you if you could choose and Dictate how elk management was run, and you, the places you like to hunt. Would you prefer opportunity, trophy, somewhere in between? I'm curious what people think. Yeah, What's the so put I, it in the comments. Let us know what you prefer.
2: I'm sure you are going to get a lot of comments, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: but yeah, you can also email us some if you got a bunch of information you want to share. You can email us at weekly at freshtracks.tv. Yeah, I know. way I would
2: that. leave that if there's anything I could add in my 30 years of being involved in this stuff. Show up. Right. You know, if you don't show up, if you don't make your voice heard through phone calls, emails, appearances, whatever, you you know, they don't look you up in the phone book and say, hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. And they aren't down at the coffee shop or the bar listening to you and your friends. And they're not reading, they're
0: not reading the YouTube comments either, unfortunately. Show up. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we got to wrap it up. We could talk about this forever, probably, but... Thanks for watching, and uh, we'll be back hopefully next week. Yeah, next week.